0: Chapter 9 of the Autobiography of Moncure Conway This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Wainwright Autobiography Memories and Experiences, Volume 1, by Moncure D. Conway, Chapter 9 My uncle, Dr. John Henry Daniels, said to me when I was leaving home, So, you are going to be a journeyman soul-saver. I did not begin life with that burden on me, and when it came was too young to question whether it was part of me, my hunch, or a pack of outside things like that strapped on Bunyan's pilgrim. My pack was symbolized in my saddlebags, where the Bible, Emerson's essays, Watson's theology, Carlyle's latter-day pamphlets, Jeremy Taylor's holy living and dying, the methodist discipline and coleridge's aids to reflection got on harmoniously for a time dr daniel's label a journeyman soul-saver told true in a sense it was really my own enmeshed soul i had to save i was struggling at the centre of an invisible web of outer influences And hereditary forces i was without wisdom how many blunders i made in my sermons with which i took so much pains i know not but i remember a friendly hint from the wife of the honorable bowie davis that a sermon was too agrarian in another case the recoil was more serious. It came through my presiding elder who said, From what I hear, a sermon of yours on the new birth was too profound. This troubled me deeply. I had supposed that Jesus meant to be profound, and put much study into the sermon, the only favorable response to which was, from an aged negro woman who long after i had left methodism laid her hand on my head and said i never knew what the lord meant by our being born again until i heard you preach about it and bless the lord it's been plain ever since my early training in law courts determined my method of preaching in preparing a sermon i fixed on some main point which i considered of vital importance and dealt with it as if i were pleading before judge and jury this method was not methodism i was in continual danger of being too profound and though congregations were interested in my sermons, they brought me more reputation for eccentricity than for eloquence. This, however, was not a matter of concern to me. Ambition for fame and popularity was not among my faults. My real mission was personal, two individuals. In each neighborhood on my circuit, there were some whom I came to know with a certain intimacy aspiring souls whose confidences were given me. However far away I might be, they rose before me when I was preparing for that appointment. They inspired messages in the sermon. No general applause could give me the happiness felt when these guests of my heart met me with smiles of recognition or clasped my hand with gratitude it was an agricultural region in which crime and even vices were rare slavery existed only in its mildest form and there was no pauper population to excite my reformatory zeal nor was there even any sectarian prejudice to combat the county was divided up between denominations friendly to each other and hospitable to me my personal influence was thus necessarily humanized i could not carry on any propaganda of methodism in the homes of non-methodist gentlemen and ladies who entertained me even had i felt so inclined without showing my church inferior to theirs my belief is that i gradually preached myself out of the creeds by trying to prove them by my lawyer-like method moreover i had the habit of cross-examining the sermons of leading preachers finding statements that in a law court would have told against their case at a camp meeting in eighteen fifty one i learned that our presiding elder was about to preach on The resurrection of the body i slipped into his hand the following query a soldier fallen in the field remains unburied his body mingles with the sod springs up in the grass cattle graze there and atoms of the soldier's body become beef the beef is eaten by a man who suddenly dies while in him are particles of the soldier's body conveyed to him by the grass-fed beef. Thus, two men die, with the same material substance in them. How can there be an exact resurrection of both of those bodies as they were at the moment of death? The preacher read out the query and said, All things are possible with God, nothing more. It made a profound impression on me that a divine should take refuge in a phrase. The doctrine in question involved the verbal inspiration of Scripture and the Apostles' Creed. I made a note of another thing at this camp meeting. The Reverend Littleton Morgan, an accomplished preacher, declared that in his passion and crucifixion Christ suffered all that the whole human race must have suffered in hell to all eternity but for that sacrifice at dinner some ministers demurred at this doctrine i maintained that it appeared to be a logical deduction from our theory of the atonement but i soon recognized that it was a reducio Ad absurdum. Rockville Circuit, being near Washington, I was able at times to pass a few days in the capital, where I had relatives and acquaintances. I attended the debates in Congress and in the Supreme Court, where I heard Daniel Webster's speech in the famous Gaines case. It was a powerful speech, impressively delivered, but, i had sufficient experience in courts to recognize several passages meant for the fashionable audience with which the room was crowded he was against the appellant mrs Gaines, who was pleading for her legitimacy as well as property and described his client persistently besieged by litigation as a rock beaten by ocean waves he drew all eyes on pleasant myra Gaines, and i remember thinking the metaphor inflectious. my sympathies were with the lady and the rock might symbolize the stony heart of the man holding on to her property but i was so interested in webster's look and manner that in my ignorance of the evidence, my attention to what he said was fitful, and the speech was obliterated by the thrilling romance rehearsed by the judges in their decisions. For it was in two volumes the minority opinion of Justice Wayne and Justice Daniel, my grand uncle, in favor of Mrs. Gaines being especially thrilling no American novelist would venture on which a tale of intrigue, adultery, bigamy, disguises betrayal as those justices searched through, unshrinkingly ignoring the company present. On one of my visits to Washington, I heard a sermon from the famous Ashbury Roselle which lifted the vast audience to exaltation and joy. His subject was the kingdom of God and triumphs of the cross, and he began by declaring that it was universally agreed that ideal government was the rule of one supreme and competent individual head. This Carlian sentiment uttered in the capital of the so-called Republic, gave me some food for thought at the time, and I remembered it when I awakened to the anomaly of disowning as a Republican the paraphernalia of royalty, while as a preacher I was using texts and hymns about the thrones and crowns and scepters and worshipping a king. My interest in party politics had declined. I began to study large human issues. One matter that I entered into in 1851 was international copyright. On this subject I wrote an article which appeared in the National Intelligencer. I took the manuscript to the office and there saw the venerable Joseph Gales, who founded the paper and w w seaton the editor mr seaton remarked that i was a very young man to be in holy orders and after glancing at the article said he was entirely in sympathy with it in that article i appealed to senator sumner to take up the matter and thenceforth he sent me his speeches i little imagined how much personal interest i was to have some years later in gales and seaton who were among the founders of the unitarian church in washington i used sometimes to saunter into the bookshop of frank taylor or that of his brother hudson taylor afterwards intimate unitarian friends before i knew that there was a unitarian church in washington from one of them i bought a book that deeply moved me the soul her sorrows and her aspirations by francis william newman i took this book to heart before i was conscious of my unorthodoxy nothing in it then suggesting to me that the author was an unbeliever in supernaturalism. The setting given by Newman's book to Charles Wesley's hymn, Come, O Thou Traveler Unknown, may that hymn my inspiration, and it has been my song in many a night wherein I have wrestled with phantoms. But my phantoms were not phantism, and brought no horrors, into those beautiful woods and roads of Montgomery County, these were my study. I was wont to start off to my appointments early in order that I might have no need to ride fast, and when clear of a village, take from my saddle bags an Emerson or Coleridge or Newman, and throwing the reins on my horse's neck read and read or pause to think on some point i remember that in reading emerson repeatedly i seemed never to read the same essay as before whether it was the new morning or that i had mentally travelled to a new point of view there was always something i had not previously entered into his thoughts were mother thoughts, to use Balzac's words. Over the ideas were shining ideals that made the world beautiful to me. The woods and flowers and birds amid which I passed made a continuous chorus for all this poetry and wit and wisdom. And science also. From Emerson I derived facts about nature that filled me with wonder on one of my visits to professor baird at the smithsonian institution i talked of these statements he was startled that i should be reading emerson with whose writings he was acquainted at the end of our talk baird said whatever may be thought of emerson's particular views of nature there can be no question about the nature in him and in his writings that is true and beautiful a college mate newman hank was the preacher on stafford circuit virginia and it was arranged that for one round of appointments he and i should exchange circuits i thus preached for a month among those who had known me from childhood though few of them were methodists they all came to hear me and I suppose many were disappointed. I had formerly spoken in their debating societies with the facility of inexperience, but was no longer so fluent. At Fredericksburg, June 19, I preached to a very large congregation and was invited to the houses of my old friends, none of them Methodists. But, the culminating event was my sermon in our own town Falmouth three days later how often had i sat in that building listening to sermons methodist baptist presbyterian occasionally falling under the spell of some orator who made me think its pulpit the summit of the world how large that church in my childhood and how grand its assemblage of all the beauty and wealth of the neighborhood, when I stood in the pulpit and realized how small the room was, and could recognize every face and observe every changing expression, and when I saw before me my parents, my sister, and brothers with almost painful anxiety in their loving eyes, strange emotions came to me, The first of my phantoms drew near and whispered, Are you sure, perfectly sure, that the seeds you are about to sow in these hearts that cherish you are the simple truth of your own heart and thought? My text was, Thou wilt show me the path of life. My theme, that every human being is on earth for a purpose the ideal life was that whose first words were i must be about my father's business and the last it is finished when we reached home my uncle dr john henry daniel said there was a vein of calvinism running all through that sermon i hate calvinism cried i no matter the idea of individual predestination was in your sermon and it may be true my father was i believe gratified by the sermon but he said with a laugh one thing is certain Mon: should the devil ever aim at a methodist preacher you'll be safe in this sermon which ignored hell and heaven and dealt with religion as the guide and consecration of life on earth, I had unconsciously taken the first steps in my earthward pilgrimage. When I returned to my own circuit, a burden was on me that could not roll off before the cross. Our most cultured congregation was at Brookville, a village named after the race of which Roger Brook, was at this time the chief our pretty methodist church there was attended by some episcopalian families halls magruders donalds coulters who adopted me personally the finest mansion was that of john hall who insisted on my staying at his house when i was in the neighborhood he was an admirable gentleman and so friendly with the methodists that they were pleased at the hospitality shown their minister. Mrs. Hall, a grand woman intellectually and physically, was a daughter of Roger Brooke. She had been disowned by the Quakers for marrying out of meeting. But it was a mere formality. They all loved her just as much. Her liberalism had leavened the families around her, she was not interested in theology and never went to any church but encouraged her lovely little daughters of ten and twelve years to enjoy sunday like any other day after some months she discovered that some of my views resembled those of her father and desired me to visit him there was a flourishing settlement of hicksite quakers at sandy spring near brookville i never met one of them nor knew anything about them hicksite was a meaningless word to me uncle roger their preacher was spoken of throughout montgomery county as the best and wisest of men and i desired to meet him when i afterwards learned that hicksite was equivalent to unorthodox it was easy to understand why none of them should seek the acquaintance of a Methodist minister. The Quakers assembled twice a week, and happening one Wednesday to pass their meeting house, I entered. Impelled by curiosity, most of those present were in Quaker dress, which I did not find unbecoming for the ladies, perhaps because the wearers were refined, and some of them pretty. After a half hour's silence, a venerable man, of very striking appearance, over six feet in height, and his long head full of force, arose, laid aside his hat, and in a low voice, in strange contrast with his great figure, uttered these words, Walk in the light, while ye are children of the light lest darkness come upon you not a word more he resumed his seat and hat and after a few moments silence shook hands with the person next to him then all shook hands and the meeting ended i rode briskly to my appointment and went on with my usual duties But this, my first Quaker experience, had to be digested. The old gentleman, with his Solomonic face, it was Roger Brooke, who had broken the silence with but one text, had given that text by its very insultation and modification of mystical suggestiveness. After I had attended the Quaker meeting several times, it was heard of by my Methodist friends. One of these, a worthy mechanic, told me that Samuel Jenny had preached in the Quaker meeting, and once said that the blood of Jesus could no more save man than the blood of a bullock. This brother's eyes were searching, though kindly. Roger Brook belonged to the same family as that of roger brook taney then chief justice of the united states his advice opinion arbitration were sought for in all that region despite anti-slavery and rationalistic convictions he leavened all montgomery county with tolerance one morning as i was riding off from the quaker meeting a youth overtook me and said uncle roger wished to speak to me i turned and approached the old gentleman's carry-all he said i have seen thee at one or two of our meetings if thee can find it convenient to go home with us to dinner we shall be glad to have thee the faces of his wife and daughter-in-law beamed their welcome and i accepted the invitation the old mansion brook grove contained antique furniture and the neatness bespoke good housekeeping so also did the dinner for these Maryland quakers knew the importance of good living to high thinking there was nothing sanctimonious about this home of the leading quaker uncle roger had a delicate humor when i left the baltimore conference the quakers were given by many methodists the discredit of having undermined my faith but their only contribution to my new faith was in enabling me to judge the unorthodox tree by its fruits of culture and character if theology were ever discussed by them it was i who introduced the subject they had no proselyting spirit i thought of joining the quaker society but roger brooke advised me not to do so thee will find among us he said a good many prejudices for instance against music of which thou art fond and while thou art mentally growing would it be well to commit thyself to any organized society how often have i had to ponder those words of jesus my god my god why hast thou forsaken me men do not forsake their god he forsakes them it is the god of the creeds that first forsakes us more and more the dogmas come into collision with plain truth every child's clear eyes contradict the guilty fantasy of inherited depravity. Every compassionate sentiment abhors the notion of hell and salvation by human sacrifice. Yet our tender associations, our affections, are intertwined with these falsities, and we cling to them till they forsake us. For more than a year I was like one flung from a fondered ship holding on to a raft till it went to pieces, then to a floating log till it buffeted off. To every stick, every straw, one after another the gods forsake us, forsake our common sense, our reason, our justice, our humanity. In the autumn of my first ministerial year I had to take stock of what was left me that could honestly be preached in methodist pulpits about the trinity i was not much concerned the morally repulsive dogmas and atrocities ascribed to the deity in the bible became impossible what then was salvation i heard from roger brooke this sermon he shall save the people from their sins not in them. It is the briefest sermon I ever heard, but it gave me a Christianity for one year, for it was sustained by my affections. They were keen, and the thought of turning my old home in Falmouth into a house of mourning and grieving the hearts of my friends in Carlisle and congregations that so trusted me appeared worse than death my affections were at times rack and thumbscrew i had no friend who could help me on the intellectual moral and philosophical points involved roger brooke and william henry farquhar were rationalists by birthright they had never had any dogma to unlearn nor had they to suffer the pain of being sundered from relatives and friends in my loneliness i stretched appealing hands to emerson after his death my friend edward emerson sent me my letters to his father and the first is dated at rockville november fourth eighteen fifty one without any conventional opening how could i call my prophet dear sir my poor trembling letter begins with a request to know where the dial can be purchased and proceeds i will here take the liberty of saying what nothing but a concern as deep as eternity should make me say i am a minister of the christian religion The only way for the world to re-enter paradise in my earnest belief i have just commenced that office at the call of the holy ghost now in my twentieth year about a year ago i commenced reading your writings i have read them all and studied them sentence by sentence i have shed many burning tears over them because you gain my assent to laws which when i see how they would act on the affairs of life i have not courage to practice by the law sin revives and i die i sometimes feel as if you made for me a second fall from which there is no redemption by any atonement to this there came a gracious response concord massachusetts thirteenth september eighteen fifty one dear sir i fear you will not be able except at some chance auction to obtain any set of the dial in fact smaller editions were printed of the later and latest numbers which increases the difficulty I am interested by your kind interest in my writings, but you have not let me sufficiently into your own habit of thought to enable me to speak to it with much precision. But I believe what interests both you and me most of all things, and whether we know it or not, is the morals of intellect. In other words, that no man is worth his room in the world who is not commanded by a legitimate object of thought the earth is full of frivolous people who are bending their whole force and the force of nations on trifles and these are baptized with every grand and holy name remaining of course totally inadequate to occupy any mind and so sceptics are made a true soul will disdain to be moved except by what natively commands it though it should go sad and solitary in search of its master a thousand years the few superior persons in each community are so by their steadiness to reality, and their neglect of appearances, this is the euphrasy and rue that purge the intellects, and ensure sight. Its full rewards are slow, but sure, and yet I think it has its reward on the instant, inasmuch as simplicity and grandeur are always better than dapperness but I will not spin out the saws farther, but hasten to thank you for your frank and friendly letter and to wish you the best deliverance in that contest to which every soul must go alone, yours in all good hope, R. W. Emerson. This letter I acknowledged with a longer one, December twelfth, 1851, in which I say, i have very many correspondents but i might almost say yours is the only letter that was ever written to me early in eighteen fifty two kosoth visited washington and enthusiasm for him and his cause carried me there the washington pulpits had not yet said anything about slaves at our own doors It was easy to be enthusiastic for liberty, as far away as Hungary. And so the preachers all paid homage to Kosath. I stopped at the house of Reverend Littleton Morgan, whose wife was an authoress, and her sister, Carrie Dallum, the most attractive friend I had in Washington. With her I went to the New Year's levee at the white house and also to call on the widow of president john quincy adams a handsome and entertaining old lady i also think it was then and by her that i was taken to see the widow of alexander hamilton mayor seaton entered and in courtly style took her hand in both of his and kissed it bending low she was still her ninety-fifth year a cheerful and handsome lady gracious and dignified her narratives of society in that city as she remembered it sounded like ancient legends i remember particularly her account of a president's drawing-room in the time of president jackson mrs hamilton was i believe the first to introduce ices into the country At any rate, she told me that President Jackson, having tasted ices at her house, resolved to have some at his next reception. For, in those days so simple and small, were the receptions that refreshments were provided. Mrs. Hamilton related that at the next reception, the guests were seen melting. Each spoonful of ice cream, with their breath preparatory to swallowing it the reception itself was she said more like a large tea-party than anything else kossuth was a rather small man with a pale face a soft eye a poetic and pathetic expression and a winning voice he spoke english well and his accent added to his eloquence by reminding us of his country for which he was pleading i followed him about washington to the capitol the white house the state department etc listening with rapt heart to his speeches and weeping for hungary i find this note undated kosov received today a large number of gentlemen and ladies to whom He discoursed eloquently of the wrongs of Hungary. Many were moved to tears, and some ladies presented their rings and others trinkets for the cause of the oppressed. A large slave auction took place at Alexandria, just across the river, on the same day. But, alas, I presently had a tragedy of my own to weep for, the death of my elder brother Peyton. He had long suffered from the sequel of Scarletina, but nevertheless had studied law and begun practice. During the summer of 1851, he visited me on my circuit, Rockville, and accompanied me to St. James's camp meeting. He was deeply affected on hearing me preach and approached the mourners bench no conversion occurred and he returned home Falmouth, in a sad mood then there arose in him the abhorrence of dogmas and the ideal of a church of pure reason absolutely creedless and unecclesiastical uniting all mankind alas little did he know that his brother even myself was at that moment in mortal inward struggle with a creed but this i learned only after his death for at that critical moment he died of typhoid fever march thirteenth eighteen fifty two fourteen days after his twenty-second birthday there was bequeathed to My later years, the miserable reflection that possibly he might have survived the attack, but for the lowering of his strength by agitation under my preaching at the camp-meeting. End of chapter nine. Recording by Simon. Wainwright.